Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. The most important thing about today is that we acknowledge Christ, that we acknowledge the glorious fact that he died on the cross, that he was raised from the dead. And we celebrate that every Lord's Day. And this day in particular, Lord, as uh, we are receiving the Lord's table together later on, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would give us a sense of sobriety about the reality of the cross, that it was real pain, real blood, real anguish, a real death. And because of Christ's faithfulness, we sit here as those that will be someday glorified, that we will experience the reality of heaven. We even now experience the realities of, of the heavenly things in Christ Jesus, all the things that we need. We experience the reality of the body of Christ coming together each week, Lord, in, in glorious fellowship. Each one of us possessing the indwelling spirit of God making us brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this morning, as we begin to turn our hearts and minds for a whole day to the Word of God and to the God of the Word, I pray that our time this morning would be useful as we consider just how to study your Word and how to know you better through your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to um, start looking at observation. And we're, this is one part of three, and we're going to get... I was trying to figure out why these lectures are so long, and now I remembered I took an hour and a half on each one uh, when we first went through this. So I was trying to figure out why I need to go faster. Um, so we'll see if we get all the way through or not. What I'm going to do is, this morning, first of all, just give you some, some big concepts. And um, and by now you should have access to the, to all the notes. So if you don't want to take notes, it's all I'm doing is going by the very notes that you have access to. We're going to go through some big concepts. Then I'm going to go through um, kind of getting to know your text and asking a whole bunch of questions. And I'm going to give you a ton of questions to ask. And really, it's just it's just a matter of taking that list and going through your Bible text with those questions. That's the the heart of observation. But we did the uh, the Herman pyramid last time and at the core the the foundation is observation the next part of the pyramid is interpretation and the little capper on top is um, is application so uh, if you are doing the first assignment the context assignment just remember basically what you're doing is everything around the text everything that's not the text itself but the history the the uh, the, the context all around and, and you have a list of things to do for that um, the, the context paper is just a really beefed up Bible book review is what it is um, with as much detail as you can it can be in bullet points it doesn't have to be um, you know well written it's just just information. So we're going to start with some big concepts. And the first one is just um, moving on here. Literal interpretation. This is a must. And you would you would think, well, isn't that obvious? Believe it or not, that's not obvious. And this is a huge debate in the in the American church today, um, even among uh, those who believe the biblical gospel. We have other names for literal interpretation. Historical, that's an important word. Um, grammatical, that's an important word. I like the phrase historical, grammatical. That, that kind of tells you that the history is important, the grammar is important, um, or just literal methods. Now, uh, those of us who subscribe to a literal interpretation of Scripture tend to, we, we get... We get dinged or knocked because uh, people set up straw man arguments. A straw man argument is arguing with you about something you don't even believe. Okay, Telling you you believe something that you don't. So let me give you some of those. What literal interpretation does not mean. It doesn't mean inflexible exaggeration that's not sensitive to figures of speech or literary style. Uh, in other words, in John 10, a literal interpretation is not that Jesus is actually a door made of wood. That's, that's silly. Nobody believes that. Consistent uh, literal interpretation is not a consistent demand to dismiss culturally understandable speech. Of course we understand that. Old Testament prophecy, for example, describes uh, the weaponry of the future as spears and arrows. 
Is it actually spears and arrows? I don't know. We may be blown back to caveman times, and so it will be spears and arrows, but the author's using culturally familiar vocabulary, and that makes sense to us, and that's fine. Literal interpretation is not an insistence of precision when the context doesn't demand it. For example, the 185,000 troops struck down in 2 Kings 19 doesn't demand that it. it couldn't be 184,999 or 185,001. It doesn't make any difference. When the context demands it, though, precision is, is demanded. It's clear. Revelation speaks of exact time periods, 1,260 days. That is precise. Revelation 11 and 12. So what does it mean? Literal interpretation means you don't just get to make up metaphorical meanings without sufficient cause to do so. I'm amazed how many people use the phrase, this means, and thinks that that causes the existence of truth. Saying this means X, Y, and Z does not make it true. It just means that you said this means. That's all that says. And so when you're, if you're reading commentaries or reading Bible helps, when an author says something means something, you need to look for an argument. You need to look for, well, where does he get this? Where does he get this idea? Uh, I'll show you this in, in a moment. Um, well, actually right now. Uh, as an example, in the New Testament, I can say the word crown means reward or what you're coming to in heaven. It's a, it's a symbol. But I'm not saying that just because it's my idea. That's consistent all through the New Testament. And so there's a reasoning, there's an argument. And so along with that, you ascertain the usual customary sense of terms, crown in the New Testament, blessedness, reward, things in the heavenly realm. You have the crown of eternal life in James 1.12. You have explanations of crowns. So we're on really, really good, solid ground there. It does mean that you don't depend on secondary sources to test the validity of Scripture. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, just because John Calvin believes something doesn't mean it's true. Just because biblical archaeology uh, confirms something in the Bible does not, you ready for this, does not contribute to the validity of Scripture. Now, biblical archaeology and other sources, secondary sources, are really interesting, and it's it's a lot of fun to find that people who have been putting down uh, history and scripture is somehow inaccurate when history or archaeology shows it to actually be accurate. That's fun, and you kind of got a little sense of like that, right? But it doesn't make the Bible valid. The Bible needs no help to be made valid. It's self-validating. Um, so secondary sources, there's a whole um, area of study called the historical critical method that if you can't show something as being true from outside the Bible, then it's dubious and suspicious in the Bible. And we don't believe that for a moment. The Bible is self-sufficient. It is self-validating. Now, does that mean secondary sources aren't helpful? Of course they're helpful. I use them every week. I use tons of them. Um, but secondary sources don't make me go, oh, phew, this, this university says that this verse in the Bible is true. I feel so much better. No, it doesn't make any difference. The Bible is self-validating, and that's, that's an important thing. It does mean that doctrine is formed from the scripture. And I cannot emphasize this enough. This is, I, I would say, one of the greatest battles within uh, conservative Christianity today is doctrine must be formed from scripture. You don't approach scripture with a preconceived theological system. And the, the argument is, well, everybody has a preconceived theological system. I would agree with that. Correct it by going to scripture first. Does that make sense? Your, your system, and, and, and we're treated like we're somehow just blind lab rats that can't do anything, uh, it, that once we believe something, the Bible becomes completely inaccessible to us. No, the Bible ought to be changing your theology. It ought to be correcting you. If, uh, if everybody came to Grace Bible Church, if you had to um, say, I agree with, understand, and in, in 100% uh, total parallel precision and agreement with every single line of the doctrinal statement of the Grace Bible Church to be a member, nobody be members here, 
right? My hope is that you agree with just enough to get in your foot in the door and then begin to learn and to grow and have those weekly aha experiences because the Bible is correcting your theology. The Bible must correct your theology. And that, I cannot say enough about this because uh, you, you hear um, phrases thrown out all of the time that are not biblical and yet they're accepted as truth. Um, the phrases like the covenant of the grace, covenant of the redemption, covenant of the works. Those in circles with, with men and women that we love are thrown out as true. They are not mentioned in scripture. And so um, you can't say something is true unless you can prove it from Scripture. Now, I know we have two hymns in our hymnal that say Covenant of Grace. We just, I just put an asterisk and say the New Covenant uh, when, when we're doing that. And uh, our, our hymnals are not inspired, so that's okay. So, so if you have a doctrinal position, that's great. I want all of you to have doctrinal positions on everything. Can you show it from Scripture, though? Not proof texting it, not not saying, well, here's three verses that prove my position is true. No, is that the consistent position across the whole of Scripture? And hopefully, over the course of time, your theology is undergoing change and undergoing correction and modifying. That's that's a good thing. So why is this a big deal? Who who cares? Let's just open our Bibles, right? Why is literal interpretation important? Well, first of all, it's the norm for interpreting literature. That's how you normally interpret things. What you, you don't read an article. It used to say newspaper. Nobody reads those anymore. Um, you, you don't read an article online. There's probably a few of you do. Sorry. Um, you don't read an article online and automatically begin to assign metaphorical meanings to things, do you? No, you read it and you assume that what it says is true. So that's the normal way you read anything. Why would God give us a document having built us to know language, to have created written language, and to think a certain way, we always assume what is written is true, and it means what it says and says what it means, why would he give us a document that is totally different than that, that we're supposed to somehow interpret it in a completely different way? He wouldn't do that. Another reason for literal interpretation, all secondary meanings must logically be based on a literal foundation. Meaning that when you have a symbol, it refers to something that is real, that is actual. It's not just an ethereal concept. And this is the important part. Literal interpretation is the only method which handcuffs the abuse of scripture by eisegesis. Eisegesis is a, is a Greek word that means to read into the text. We do exegesis, which is to take out of the text, to remove from the text, to read out of the text. So we, we handcuff ourselves. You're, you, you are to be bound, handcuffed, tied up, gagged when it comes to interpreting scripture without scripture just being its own interpreter. And so uh, it keeps us from forcing our imaginations on on Scripture. Um, so let's just kind of start the big picture of Bible study. And again, we're just going up really high here. And I'm I'm using uh, a a method of illustration by Duval and Hayes in their book Journey into God's Word. It's a tremendous book. Step one: grasping the text in their town. What does that mean? It means you're observing what the text meant to the original readers. You must start there. That was God's original intention. He, he didn't erase the attention to the original readers. This is what you're doing right now. If you're doing the first assignment, this is context, culture, history, grammar, um, the original language, as much as you're able to utilize that, uh, literary context, everything you can that's happening in their time, in their culture. That's why reading uh, articles about uh, things like Jewish festivals and how uh, houses were built um, is important. When you see in the New Testament all these references to the upper room, what does that mean? Why is that important? Those are the types of things that help you understand where they are, the original reader. The second step, to use uh, Duval and Hayes, their, their picture, you measure the width of the river to cross. How wide is it? What are the differences between the situation of the biblical audience and our situation today? What barriers of, of culture and language and time and situation and covenant need to be understood and accounted for? Um, some bridges are, are small, or some rivers, rather, are small. 
They're not that big. When, when the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church about having their worship services be done decently and in order, that's a small bridge. We can get that, right? When in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel hacks King Agag to pieces with his sword, that's a bigger river to cross, right? We're, we're not going to go out and say, uh, the Bible says to hack bag, bad men to pieces. So that's a bigger river to cross. And so you're, you're measuring that. What's the actual situation of the original reader? Um, should I be cautious about an overly quick, rapid application to the modern Christian? That is the bane and enemy of Bible study, is the quick application. Um, especially reading in the Old Testament, where, where it's not didactic teaching so much as narrative situations. The third step. Crossing the principalizing bridge. That's the bridge you're putting over the river there. What's the timeless theology of this passage based on my observations? Theology is, uh, theology never changes. It's the same from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's, it's added to and enhanced in understanding as you go through the progression of scripture, but theology never changes. I could show you that Genesis 1 and 2 um, contain a reference to Trinitarian creation. Does Genesis 1 and 2 tell you everything you need to know about the Trinity? No, you find that all throughout Scripture, but it's consistent. How do these theological principles mesh with the whole of Scripture? So how do I cross this bridge? Uh, My favorite example is David and Goliath. David and Goliath is, uh, interestingly, I've never actually preached that passage. I guess I need to one one of these days. What's the usual application? When you're faced with the Goliaths in your life, God will help you defeat them, right? Which begins to not make sense when you're in stage four cancer and it's not treatable. Um, Okay, that's a pretty big Goliath. How does that fit? Let's do this better. Here's a timeless theological principle. David was God's chosen king. God blessed and preserved him in the name of the coming Davidic covenant from whom would come Jesus Christ. That's a bigger reason for David and Goliath. Here's another theological principle that's timeless. Spiritual weapons of the believer are used to fight the ungodly weapons of spiritual enemies. In other words, that, that David was a little shrimpy guy going up against a giant. The principle is a spiritual one. He says, in, uh, he said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's spiritual warfare. I'm coming to you in God's power. And that's exactly the same as we have in Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood and so forth, but we're against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is a principle that is, that is timeless, that's universal, and that's legitimate. And then once you're across that bridge, you're grasping the text in our town. How should individual believers apply these theological principles in life today? How do you apply that? Let's use David and Goliath again as an example. The first theological principle, God's preservation of David and the Davidic covenant is very helpful to us in reminding us of the faithfulness of God to bring us a savior and to provide us assurance of the faithfulness to God to complete our salvation. You realize what was happening in that moment that if Goliath gets off one shot, Jesus is never born. But God, you know, if you were there now, knowing what's happening, like you're in Back to the Future or something, and David's got that little sling going, you're going, come on, you can do it, you know, because that's a big deal. If David can can defeat Goliath, then God can preserve your salvation because he did so back then. He was preserving your salvation in the Valley of Elah that day a couple of thousand years ago. So that's... That's an application to us. How about the spiritual warfare application? Our greatest enemies are spiritual in nature, and they're to be fought and defeated spiritually, not with worldly means, with the Word of God, with the Spirit of God. If you're you're depressed and you're going to see your psychologist, why? why? They have nothing to offer except a whole bunch of books on their shelf that all disagree with each other. You go to the Word of God and you go to the truths of God. You fight spiritual things with spiritual warfare. Then to put all this together, uh, Duval and Hayes have a great little picture here that's uh, kind of neat. You have their town. Notice the palm trees. I think that's representative. Um, your, there's the, the width of the river, culture, language, time, situation, covenant. You're crossing the bridge. That's what, what, How does this come to me? And now you come to our town, and there's us right there. So that's a, that's a good picture. Where do you start? Right here. 
if this is all you get out of all ten of these uh, sessions on Bible study methods, I start with the original reader and work my way forward, that will improve your chances of, of getting a text more accurately. And I can't remember if this is sent out with the notes or not. Uh, Jay, are you in here? Do you remember if this picture was in the notes? You don't? Okay. You have 20 seconds to take a picture, I guess. <laughs> uh, or I think the slides are on, available as well online. So um, what I'm going to do in just a minute while you're all desperately taking pictures of this... <laughs> Is I'm going to give you an example, and we're going to go outside of the Bible. Because I want you to just relax and not worry about getting something wrong. And so I'm going to give you an example of observations. And we're just still kind of being very basic here. Um, so here's, here's the observation example, and I want you to get into the mind of the author. This is what we're, we're getting into the mind of the author. This is a love note. <laughs> Dearest Cudums, it has been four days and three hours since our fifth date. Can't wait for the sixth. Our conversations make me think, and looking into your eyes makes my heart sing. See you Tuesday at 5.30 for a glorious dinner and walk just 24 hours from now. Love, Snuggy Wuggy. Okay, so there's no pressure here. You can exegete this wrong, and there will be no eternal consequences. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you 12 observations from this text. Okay, and this is just an example. You don't have to write this down. First of all, the author either doesn't have a job, or he has Thursdays off, or he has a flexible schedule on Thursdays, or he had an abnormal Thursday recently. You know, wait, where do you get that? Well, I'll show you how we come to that. Doesn't have a job, has Thursdays off, has a flexible schedule on Thursdays, or had an abnormal Thursday recently. Second observation, there are six references to specific numbers. What does that tell you about the author? He's precise. Or she is precise. There's no gender in there. Third, the author is thinking continually about the other based on the precision. Do you remember exactly what time it was the last time you spoke to your spouse? No. They, he remembers or she remembers the exact time. It begins and ends with nicknames. The author is either very affectionate and comfortable or socially unaware. One of the two. There's only been a few dates and you're already calling me these weird names. There are two references to our... There's already a feeling like a, a, a feeling like we're a couple. There are two references to this is a sixth one. Two references to my or me, but there's two implied references to I. I can't wait. I will see you Tuesday. There are two references to your or to you. We're getting very specific here. The eighth observation: the author mentions only what the author the other one does for the author, not what the author does for the other. And so there's a, a one sidedness to this. The author views the other as an intellectual equal or greater. Our conversations make me think. So that's a, that's a good thing. There may be an implied request for reassurance that the other one is still committed. See you Tuesday at 5.30. Right? I, I, I meet with people all the time and I generally try to ha- either myself or have somebody send a text or an email looking forward to seeing you at such and such a time. Right? Because I don't want to show up and eat a salad by myself. That's why we do that. Here's an 11th observation. The author is writing on Monday at 5.30 p.m. or 5.30, so their fifth date was the previous Thursday at 2.30 in the afternoon. 5.30 is not specified as a.m. or p.m., but it is for dinner, so it's most likely p.m. So, 12th observation, a mid-afternoon date means that our original observations about the author's Thursdays now hold water, and we understand that Thursdays are a good day for that person. Now, you would ask questions of the text also. Example questions. Was this written by a man or a woman? The text doesn't say, but it has two sentence fragments, so that references probably a man, right? Women don't generally write, can't wait for the sixth. That's a, that's a man writing. Another question. How did they acquire nicknames so quickly? Is this social unawareness or are they just bonding really fast? And why does this not scare the recipient to death? I think that's a reasonable question. But that's one little, one little paragraph. A few sentences, a couple sentence fragments. And you're making observations from this. So, let's, let's work our way down a little bit. First thing to do in your observation is reading well. I, I think this is a step that's sometimes skipped. 
reading well. You've already established the context. That's what you're, you're doing in your, your context uh, assignment. Now you read the passage multiple times. Read the passage in other good Bible versions. Read it aloud. Um, and here's an interesting thought I've had recently, and I've, I've used this. I think it's helpful. If you're using an electronic device, change the font size. Read it in 12-point for a while, then switch it up to 20. Your brain works differently with things that are sized differently. Um, The point is to get get it as clearly as part of your mind and heart as you can. And by the time you finish studying a short passage of three, four, or five verses, you almost should have it memorized because you've dug into it at that level. Part of reading is praying through the passage, asking the Lord for help, for integrity, for accuracy, for clarity. I was reading uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, right at the end, and the Lord Jesus has appeared after the resurrection in uh, an upper room with the with the disciples. And this one little short verse, and he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. That's stunning. And then he begins explaining things to them. I, that's that's my prayer for, for all of you. That's my prayer for me when I study. That should be your prayer. Lord, open my mind to understand the scriptures. Uh, that's the prayer from Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. So that's, a, that's part of reading well, is praying through it and just, just reading it. If you're reading well, let me tell you something that will happen. If you're being disciplined and all you're doing is reading well, if you have a pen and paper or if you have some sort of electronic device, we'll we'll use the pen example, you're going to start itching to write things down. When you're reading well, that you're going to be going, come on, no, I'm going to read well first. That's a good sign. That means you're headed in the right direction. Okay, now we'll talk about asking basic questions. If you can remember one letter of the alphabet, then you can remember how to ask basic questions. All the W questions. Who? Who is speaking? Who is who is being spoken of? Who is being spoken to? So, who are all the people in it? What 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 are the characters? What what is happening? What's the flow of the passage? What's the argument being made? What are the usual meanings of the major words? This is to prevent you from jumping to interpretation. You're breaking it down. You're, you're looking, for example, if you're describing a wall, you're not saying, oh, it's a brick wall. What you're saying is there are 1,727 bricks. Here's what the color of the mortar is. Here's how many bricks are of whitish color. Here's how many bricks are of reddish color. You're breaking down the components, and that's where you start. Where? What's the physical geography? That would be part of your, uh, your context work, establishing that. But also, where are the listeners spiritually? The, more, of a, more of a metaphorical where. Where are they in life? When somebody asks you the question, where, where are you in your life? That's a metaphorical question. You, you, you wouldn't say unless you're very literal, well, I'm actually standing on this square. I'm about 30 feet from that. No, it's where are you in life? When? When is this taking place? How does it relate to other events in the Bible? That's a huge important thing. Finding timelines and, and, you know, when, when Paul writes uh, to the, to the Philippians, he's in prison. Is he in prison the first or the second time? It's the first time and that makes a difference because the second time is the last time. And, and so that makes a huge difference. In the New Testament, all the events take place within a century. Everything. So, so precision is, is important there. Culturally, um, that's just a drop in the bucket with very little change. So in other words, you don't have a lot of cultural changes happening all within the New Testament. In the Old Testament, centuries pass, and that makes a big difference. Kings die and come and go and so forth. Under the wind question, are the verbs past, present, or future? Is there a sense of urgency or a sense of patience and waiting? And so the, the wind questions are helpful. Why? Why is this passage in this portion of the book? Why is this after such and such, but before such and such? That helps you with your context. And wherefore? I know we don't use that very much. Wherefore art thou? Um, wherefore is what's the point? Now you're starting to edge into interpretation how should this go beyond the acquisition of knowledge about this passage? How does this contribute to the overall purpose of the book? Remember, in your context pre-study, you're looking at the purpose of the book. How does this passage help that purpose? Oh, that's a huge question. That helps you understand so much. So, who, what, where, when, why, wherefore? We don't have a how in there because that's more uh, interpretive. More questions. 
Patterns to observe. Patterns are important. And you have so many tools at your disposal to help you with patterns now. Um, Colored markers, highlighters, you can do that electronically. You can do it um, uh, the the good old-fashioned way. It tells you importance. How much space is devoted to the topic? What comes first and what comes last? That's very often important in Scripture. And you'll find sometimes what comes first and what comes last is the same thing. And there's a structure uh, that that tells you, well, this is the most important thing, and this sets off this uh, particular section as a a unit. Does the order or lists of nouns or verbs make a difference? Is there a noticeable repetition of words or concepts? Is is this an Old Testament passage repeated in the New Testament for emphasis? And if so, what's the context of the Old Testament passage itself? So you're looking at importance. I'm going quickly through this, but you have access to all the notes, so I can keep a decent pace going here. Relationships. How do the details relate to the overall point of the passage? How do, do the details help you modify the point of the passage? Don't be a, don't don't come to a conclusion too quickly. Um, if I if I preached everything on Sunday that I thought the previous Monday, I would get it wrong sometimes. I want to continue modifying and coming to correct conclusions. What relationships can be observed? Connecting words, uh, like relationship words, if, then, but, and, yet, and so forth. Um, phrases that modify and define each other. If you um, have never uh, done this or you want to dust off how to diagram a sentence in English, let me give you a little secret. There is no correct way to do it. Just find a way to do it. Find a way to say, this phrase is modifying this word. And that's that's helpful to you. There, there's no correct way. Just come up with your own system or or uh, Google it and find a way to, to to diagram a sentence. Look for questions and answers. Paul uses this extensively. Uh, half of the book of Romans is just a bunch of questions that Paul asks and then answers. Look for cause and effect. If, when you see the word if, what do you, what's the other word you're looking for? Then. And maybe it's not actually there in the text, but there will be a then eventually. And with Paul especially, he'll say if about 27 times before he gets to the then. It's very climactic. It's very exciting. Look for comparisons and contrasts. Those are important. is, Is B the same as A or is B the opposite of A? Reading the book of Proverbs, obviously, that's a, that's a huge theme there, uh, the way the Hebrew parallelism is set up. So relationships are important. Um, just something as simple as going through and circling words that are repeated a lot. Um, or, or coloring in concepts that are repeated multiple times. All of these things are super helpful. Okay, now we're getting to the part where you say, I thought I graduated from school. I never wanted to talk about this again. Parts of speech. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed every word. Remember, plenary inspiration, which is the whole of scripture and verbal inspiration, every word. And the Lord gave us two languages, uh, two and a half, if you want to include some of the Aramaic passages, but two and a half, three languages that are all precise in different ways. In, in Greek, there are dozens of different ways to do verbs. And so you, you look for um, the verbs. They're important. These are the most critical words in the text. There is a Bible study method that I I think is useful that says the very first thing you do is go look, find all the verbs in any given text because that tells you what's happening. Who is doing what? Are there commands? And you know this word, are they imperatives? Is the verb active or passive? If it's active, it's something the reader does. If it's passive, it's something that's done to the reader. Uh, For example, be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, is a correct translation. That's a passive verb. You are being filled with the Spirit. It is something that, that, that is happening to you, that you are, you are having, uh, you are, you are getting help from the Lord. You don't translate this, get yourself filled with the Spirit. That's an inaccurate translation because it's a passive verb. The verb forms in Greek are very precise. 
much of the time a good English translation will almost always reflect that precision and we have some help even in the Legacy Standard Bible you see little asterisks um, that tell you that a that a continuing tense of a verb is translated as past tense just because it doesn't make sense to constantly say and he was going in the door and he was saying hello and he was you know we don't we don't talk that way and so um, but it gives you those notes so the parts of speech matter nouns Who's doing the acting and who's being acted upon? Subject and object. Adjectives, words that describe nouns, the red car, and so forth. So these are important. Now we get a little bit more complex. Adverbs, words that help describe verbs. And we have an easy way in English. Most of the time you put an L-Y on something and it makes it an adverb. Quickly walking, right? Prepositions, words that tell you where or how action is happening. In, on, upon, through, to, by, etc. Um, prepositional phrases are huge in scripture and they, they, are, they enrich our understanding of the truth. All the connecting words we've already said. And means there's something similar. But there's a contrasting thought. Yet, B is happening despite A. Therefore, a response is required. For example, therefore happens 17 times in Romans. Two different Greek words, both accurately translated therefore. So there's there's an action required as a comparison or a simile. So those words are important. Now this is my favorite part of Bible study right here. Not that part. I don't have a... uh, That's ironic. I don't have a slide for my favorite part. Okay. How is that possible? Okay, well, we'll fill it in. My favorite part is asking random questions. Asking random questions. This is the juiciest part of Bible study, okay? Um, and you don't wait. I, I, I don't ask random questions as, you know, well, this is step number 17 in my... In my no, random questions, anytime they pop into my mind, they get written down. I've written random questions on napkins in restaurants. I've written random questions in the back of my Bible. I've written random questions anytime I can. Always write them down. Um, and, and keep something with you. If you're studying the passage, it's going to become part of you, and you're, you're driving to work, and you think of this question, the minute you can pull over, write that question down. You've already been asking the structured questions with all the W questions, but things that, that pop up in your mind will often be the most interesting and the fruitful part of your study. Um, wait a minute, why, why does Paul keep saying we in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says that, that we're going to be raptured and, and we're going to be resurrected and we're going up to see Christ together? Why does he say we? That's an interesting question. The only answer I've seen that makes any sense to me is that he hoped to be part of that group. So that those are random questions. Uh, be curious. Put yourself in the place of the original reader. What was it like to stand there and see your prophet Samuel hack a king into pieces with his own sword? What was it like to see a prophet who had gray hair that had never been cut once in decades, probably going down to his feet because he took the vow of a Nazarite and never cut his hair? What was that like? I mean, Samuel walks in the room, you're like, whoo, this guy was a presence. Put yourself in the in the shoes of the reader. Those questions are, are golden. Um, and no question is too silly. Evaluate the questions later, and if they're really dumb, just don't ever tell anybody. That's the way to, to do that. <laughs> if further study doesn't answer your questions, you go to other sources to find the answers. Um, try to find the same answer from multiple authors, by the way. Don't just believe the first one because you like it. Um, once you get the answer you like and that makes the most sense, plug it back into the purpose of the book, the point of the passage. If it doesn't fit, you're wrong. If it fits, if it makes sense, it has helped enrich your study quite a bit. So ask random questions. Those are those are uh, the, the most important things, um, I, I think, for just filling in the gaps and, and making Bible study. It, it should be rich. It should be juicy and delightful and, and wonderful. You're not you're not eating beef jerky. This is a steak. It, it's wondrous. Okay, so what I'm going to do now. And I'm going to do this fast because this is just an example. And in your notes, you have all of this. I'm going back to our example. 
that we and I said we were going to stick to the English Standard Version because it would take an act of Congress to change this over to LSB at this point. Our example, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the entire observation checklist that I just gave you. You'll blend these over time, and, and you don't have to use this exactly. The, the first time you do this, I would encourage you to use it exactly, because it saves you from having to think up the questions. You're just finding the answers. So, here we go. We're going to go, go quickly through this. Who? Who is speaking? Paul is speaking. Who is being spoken of? Those with whom they have something against, who is being spoken to? The believers reading the letter. What? What is happening? Paul is telling them how to behave. What's the flow of the passage? He tells them not to, what not to do and then what to do. This is just these two verses. What's the argument being made? You must put off the sinful and put on the righteous. What are the usual meanings of the major words? In other words, off the bat, what's, what's my understanding of what these words mean? Bitterness, holding a grudge, internal resentment, wrath, belief that someone deserves judgment, uh, anger, murderous attitude, according to Matthew 5, clamor, making trouble, slander, harmful reputation, tender-hearted, and empathetic internal attitude, kindness, external actions motivated by internal attitude of tender-heartedness. Where? Oops, that's more what. Where? Physical geography is the city of Ephesus. Where the listeners spiritually, the directness and repetitiveness of these commands could indicate these sins are an issue. That's where they are spiritually. When? When is this taking place? How is it related to other events in the Bible? This letter is written about 30 years before Revelation when Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus again. Are the verbs past, present, or future? All the verbs are present tense except the last one. God and Christ forgave you. That's past tense. Is there a sense of urgency or patience? There's a sense of urgency to obey the command to be patient with one another. So you get a little bit of both there. Why? Why is this passage in this portion of the book? Well, it helps explain chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy. Why is this after such and such or before such and such? These are the same questions I went over. This comes after the general exhortations about church functioning. It comes before the specific exhortation about family life. Therefore, these general principles help explain how to function in the church and in the family. So it works for both. Wherefore? What's the point? The beginning of interpretation. How should this go beyond the acquisition of knowledge about this passage? There are general commands. These are general commands to the Christian. How does this passage contribute to the overall purpose of the book? This is what you got from your pre-study of context. It explains the conduct of the Christian based on this call to salvation, which is contained in chapters 1 through 3. Now we have the, the checklist. Importance. How much space is devoted to the topic? There are six sins to avoid and three positive actions to do. What's the emphasis? Don't do this and do do this. What comes first and what comes last? Things to stop doing come first and things to start doing come last. I use that exact uh, outline to write uh, the book I wrote, Shattered Shepherds. Five chapters on things you must stop doing and five chapters on things you must start doing. Because it works and it's biblical. Does the order or list of nouns and verbs make a difference? And this is where you say, oh, I don't want to get into the details. The details are are where you find the meat. The first three sins, bitterness, wrath, and anger, are internal. Now you're starting to have some aha moments. The second three sins, clamor, slander, and malice, are external actions. What does that tell you? You're starting to want to jump ahead to, to interpretation. What does that start to tell you? That what happens externally started where? Internally. From bitterness to malice, there's a progression from the internal grudge to the premeditated harm of a fellow believer. That's a huge progression. The outward actions reveal and expose the inner sinful attitudes. The outward action of kindness reveals the inner attitude of tenderheartedness. But experience tells us this can be faked. So the internal is the most important issue, right? You can fake kindness, but it might not be real. It reflects that God looks at the heart. Is there a noticeable repetition of words or concepts? One another, two times. Forgiveness, two times. All, two times, meaning complete obedience. Is there an Old Testament passage in the New Testament for emphasis? No, there isn't one here. 
Now, does that mean you can't go find a whole bunch of good cross-references to help beef your, your point up? No, you can do that, but it's not a direct reference to the Old Testament. Relationships. Boy, that font is small. Sorry about that. But that's... How do the details relate to the overall point of the passage? The point seems to be stop doing this and start doing that. The details tell you how to do that, what the specifics are. Do the details help you modify the overall point of the passage? No, they're confirming it, in fact, that this is a stop stop and start exhortation. What relationships can be observed? These are connecting words. They're key. Um, instead of commas, and is used many times. This could be for emphasis. Um, if you say... My three kids are are uh, Johnny, Tommy, and and uh, Jimmy. That's sort of emphasis. If you say my three kids are Johnny and Tommy and Timmy, that emphasizes. So you're noting those words there. What relationships can be observed? I already did that. Look for relationship words. If, then, but, and all these are already covered now. Look for phrases that modify and define each other. Kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, seem to be similar or identical. It's, it's one big concept described different ways. Look for questions and answers. There aren't any. Look for cause and effect. Internal sinful thoughts lead to external sinful actions. Comparisons and contrasts. The opposite of the bitterness is tenderheartedness. The opposite of wrath is forgiveness. The example we have is as God and Christ forgave you. Parts of speech. Verbs, who is doing what? The Christian is to obey the imperatives. Are there commands, imperatives? There's five of them. Let, that's a polite command. Be put away, a command to discard something. Be kind, be tenderhearted. Forgiving one another isn't exactly a command, but it's implied by the other four. Is the verb active or passive? Let is passive, something you're allowing. Be put away is passive. Be kind, that's active. Be tenderhearted, that's active. Forgiving, that's active. So mostly active verbs. Now, verb forms in Greek, again, are, are precise. Most of the time, though, you're going to get the, the, uh, get the gist of it in the English translation. A good commentary might give you some of the nitty-gritty details, so pay attention to those. They're very helpful. Don't worry about getting to that yet, though. So what's the implication here? The implication is that some, if not all, of the verbs are happening uh, are, are, are uh, commands, and yet they're, some of them are passive. So something that's happening to you, but something you're also doing. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the Christian must be empowered to obey the Lord. And what's the context? You've already established the context. Just a few verses later, 5.18, be filled with the what? Spirit. Context helps us. So the commands assume that by the Holy Spirit's power, the Ephesian believers are able to put these things away. Almost done. There it is. Implication. Something's happening to the Christian to empower. Nouns. The subject. Who's doing the acting? The reader. You are. The object. Who's being acted upon? Fellow believers. One another. There are no adjectives. Are there adverbs? Words help describe verbs. Be kind is described by tenderhearted and forgiving. Prepositions put away from you to one another. So we're going through after every single word here. Are there connecting words? As God in Christ forgave you. This is a permanent action with continuing results. It is the standard of forgiveness. How are you to forgive? The same way that God in Christ forgave you. Does that teach you everything you need to know about forgiveness? It does. Asking random questions. This is the juiciest part. Do do my English definitions hold up in Greek? Does Greek definition help flesh it out any? We'll do the cautions of word studies later because that's a a bottomless pit of of pain and agony and inaccuracy. (laughs) What might have been happening in Ephesus or in the churches around Ephesus to necessitate this exhortation? I want to find... Boy, I want to find out who's mad at each other, don't you? In the church, why why this this giant railroad spike being nailed into their hearts to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, being compassionate and and forgiving each other? Oh, aren't you dying to know who the Yodi and Syntyches are of the Ephesian church? <clears throat> How does this relate to Jesus' commands to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2? That's a whole study in and of itself. What did Jesus warn 
the, the church in Ephesus 30 years later, you have lost your what? first love. Did they ultimately obey this? No, they didn't. That's a pretty important conclusion. Who are the leaders in Ephesus that we know of? Tradition, this is a juicy random question. Tradition tells us that sometime after Timothy, John may have ended his ministry in Ephesus. Ironically, the apostle of love was in the church that eventually forgot its first love. One initial lesson, part of random questions, a local church cannot coast on what it used to know or what it used to do. It must be shepherded continually. So, I'll give you a little summary here. We did 72 observations and four major questions. So, that's what you're going to do in your passage. You just take this list of all the questions, the what are the verb forms, what, what, why is this passage in this portion of the book, all those questions, and just begin to make observations. And you might be saying, I, I can't do that, I can't do that many. Just have one answer for every question, and you will have probably at least 50 observations for your little text and that'll be a good starting point now on the in the notes themselves i've actually included i don't think they're on here i've included all the observations at the end that i made in ephesians 4 31 and 32 just for you the reference so it's a list of 72 of them in my in my little notes here it takes up four pages single space so do you see why we make observation the major foundation of the of the hermeneutic pyramid you must start here and it helps you to be accurate and to to avoid um, some mistakes and so that's just the basic part of observation next time around we're going to do um, cross-reference and word studies and kind of how to do that at a basic level which will help you i i think that if all you learn to do is make these basic observations, you have the tools at your at your fingertips now to do a basic Bible study. Then if that's all you have time for, that's terrific. That's better than most uh, Christians ever get to do. They read a passage and say, I think it means this. And they just miss the richness of what we just did. Now, if you think I was more excited than you about those 72 observations, you would be correct. You had to endure them. But I came up with them. When you're the one making those observations, you're going to be looking around. Kids, sit here and listen while I read my 104 observations of this text. (laughs) That's what makes this part of your heart and mind and makes you excited to share it with others. And if you can successfully convey that excitement and convey how glorious what you've learned is and implant that in the hearts of one other person, that's what makes this all worthwhile, right? So... Um, if you weren't excited about the 72 observations, you will be when you're the one making them. So, all right. Very good. We've started our day. This will be the hardest part of your day. It gets easier from here on. So let's pray and thank the Lord. Father, we pray that you would do what Jesus did with his disciples on that glorious evening after the resurrection. They opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I pray you would do that for us today, Lord. We've just been talking about the Bible today. But now as we move on to sing your praises and to sing truth unto you and for the edification of one another. And as we open our Bibles and read together and as we hear the word of God and as we fellowship with people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, would you impact our hearts? Would you change us? Make us more like Christ by the end of this Lord's day. Then when we woke up this morning and we pray for Christ's glory in his sake, amen.